Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey everyone, welcome to the 315th episode of Just Shoot It, a podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. This episode is brought to you by patron Courtney. I'm Warren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enloe. Today we've got our pal Brenna Malloy on the show. She's got a great story about how she started off in film school doing the thing and has quickly skyrocketed into directing 13 episodes of network television over the course of the pandemic. It's an awesome story about what it takes to be a successful network director, how to prepare, how to make the most out of those moments and those opportunities. And I think kind of an overall mindset of success that is not at all Tony Robbins-y or Guru-y or any of that stuff. Brenna is a person who is confident, but humble and working hard to do the best work that she can. And I think she's doing some of the bigger network shows. You know, she does Chicago PD, Chicago Fire, 911, giant set pieces, big action yeah. things, big cast. Explosions. Yeah, huge casts. Yeah. Probably an insane amount of vehicles and stunts and cool gear. It's a fun one. I really am quite inspired by her story. Something she told us off the mic, but that is really interesting, is it all started with a short film she made. And she said that she still today gets jobs, TV directing jobs, based off of her short film, opposed to sending episodes of her shows. Kind of makes sense, right? You send a 20-minute short instead of a 44-minute TV episode. It's easier to watch. And Well, and also, like... You know those episodes of TV are good. If you know a director has done X number of episodes over multiple seasons of a network TV show, you kind of don't need to watch them unless they're meant to stand out in some way. There are very specific ways in which you can push an envelope on a show like that, but like they need to feel consistent within the world of the show. I guess what I'm saying is, is that like this is an opportunity to say something additional about Brenna's voice and Brenna's point of view because you've got this awesome backdrop of network television, which we're all at least vaguely and most likely very specifically aware of. And speaking of Chicago, our editor Noah Bayshore is a Chicagoan. This show that you're listening to right now is edited in Chicago. Uh, if you're a filmmaker in Chicago and you're working on cool things, uh, I know know our editor is looking to link up with some other Chicago filmmakers. So Hardworking, talented dude. So for real, message us. Yeah, just shoot it pod at gmail.com. You know what? I'll say this. If you message Noah and you end up working on something, I will subsidize a free Just Shoot It hat. Will I also be subsidizing this? Or will you subsidize half a hat? Would you like to subsidize half a hat or shall I pay for the whole thing? I'll pay for it out of the money I get from you for winning my bet <laughs> about <laughs> when your next feature will be made. Well, I've got a meeting on Friday that will help me determine um, how uh, likely I'm going to be out a hundred bucks. We'll see. Anyhow, email us just shoot a pod at gmail.com and we'll get, get it to Noah if you want to meet another filmmaker in Chicago. And the other thing you can do if you are feeling like interacting with us in some way is you can go to patreon.com slash just shoot it pod where you can uh, give us a dollar or five dollars or fifteen dollars if you'd like a non-subsidized just shoot it podcast hat it's a way that you can help support the show if you feel like you get anything out of it we have like 315 episodes if you literally got something out of two episodes i feel like that would be worth a dollar a month for 12 months it's 12 dollars. go to patreon.com slash just shoot it pod and check out the easiest way you can support the podcast. Anything else? 
that's it. Without further ado, let's hop into our conversation with Brenna, potentially after a few ads. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15, 15 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Brenna Malloy on the mic. Welcome to Just Shoot It, Brenna. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Very excited to make this work. You're in Chicago. I'm in Chicago and I flew in today, which wasn't the plan originally. But thanks to COVID, everything changes all the time. You know what's funny, Brenna? I saved this anecdote for the mic. I was on a shoot last week and our um, boom operator went to Chapman, which is your alma mater, and seemed to be about your age. And I was like, oh, do you know Brenna? Do you know Brenna Malloy? And he's said yes and had nice things to say about you. And he's like, yeah, we call her Chicago Brenna now because she is in Chicago all the time. <laughs> Who and was here this? You are. His name is Will. Oh, yes, Will. I know Will. I didn't know him when he had purple hair. Hi, Will. We call him Anaheim Will. Anaheim Will. Yep, makes sense. But here you are in Chicago because you were on a never-ending hot streak of shooting network television in Chicago. Knock on wood on that one. I just have this like, ever since I started doing TV, I've just had this voice whispering in my ear. It's all gonna end. I just don't know when. <laughs> well, I hope this wasn't the jinx. I hope we don't look back on this. <laughs> I Something hope so too. That won't be the case. Right now I'm on Chicago Fire, which I just did one of. So I did one, had about a week off, and now I'm back for another one. And this is the show that gave me my first TV job. So I, I love working with these guys. And this is this will be my fifth um, Chicago Fire. It, you you kind of you're living in this procedural world. So it's Chicago Fire. What are the other shows that you direct? So I've done all my work so far at two different companies, Dick Wolf's company, where I've done Chicago Fire, Chicago PD. And then a show called FBI. The other company I've worked for is Ryan Murphy's company, where I've done 911 and uh, 911 Lone Star. Well, so I met you, Brenna, actually at Matt's baby shower. We were talking about your TV directing and how you directed so many episodes of TV in such a short amount of time. Like you started kind of like right around right before COVID, right? I did my first episode in February, 2020, and it aired, I want to say March 18th, 2020, mm. which is obviously we all know what we were doing then. And 
I was just like, I'm never going to work again. Wow. I did one episode and I'm retiring forever as a professional director. Um, and then about six months later, I got a call from 911 and it's been pretty uh, nonstop since then. And just to remind people of like the way that network TV was working back then and kind of still is, frankly, is that like a show like that that has a good number of episodes. Yeah. Like how many episodes of Chicago Fire do they do in a season? Like 20? I think they did. They did between 21 and like 25 every yeah. season. Yeah. So, so a substantial number of shows. And before COVID, people were you would get like a director would do a handful of episodes every season but like they would kind of cycle through things people a little bit more but because of covid and because of the precautions they started kind of like bubbling you up you would do multiple episodes and so there would be fewer directors on each season basically as a result so i remember at the time it was like especially tricky because even though you had nailed that first episode it felt like oh well they'll probably just have a few old hands just mop up the season for for them just to keep it convenient i know with a lot of shows the plan like right when things started back up again and it was all very uncertain and scary the plan was to bring in directors who they were very familiar with who they Mm -hmm. could depend on because of all the work they've done before that and so that was part of the reason why i thought it would never work again because sort of that window to book your second episode was passing for me I I feel just lucky that I got a second shot. Do you have any insight or any intel as to why they decided to bring you back for that second episode? So my second episode was actually at another show that I had shadowed a few years before. We can get into it because I actually think how it happened was like the perfect marriage of my agents and me laying groundwork from years before and that paying off. And so that second episode at 911, I did. And then I don't know if, you know, it getting out that I had gotten hired somewhere else helped me. You Mm -hmm. never know what happens behind the scenes, but it was around that time that I got booked for more episodes of um, Chicago Fire. So what was the groundwork that you guys laid? I did a program called the Ryan Murphy Half Initiative, which is something that they put basically one directing mentee on every episode that they produce. And I shadowed at 911 and I shadowed the producing director. And I've really worked hard when I was shadowing, prepping the episode as though I was directing it myself and engaging with the producing director, but also not annoying him and just... I think I made it clear what my approach would be as a director. And we had a discussion after I shadowed and he kind of said, you know, look, I'd love to hire you now. It's very hard for me to put forward first time directors. If you can go out and get an episode somewhere else, I'd have a much bigger chance of pitching you here. And it was kind of one of those things. He's a great guy, this producing director. His name's Brad Beaker. You guys should talk to him. He um, got his start as an editor and he's fantastic. Um, But it was one of those things you hear as an up and coming director who's like making no money and has no prospects. And you're like, okay, I will never hear from this person again. Cool, thanks. (laughs) Well, it feels like a brush off in a certain sense, right? Right. And also like he's your best chance to get an episode and he's saying... He won't give Go you an somewhere episode else. unless you get another episode. But to his credit, everything he said is came true. I mean, mm-hmm. I booked this episode of Chicago Fire. He was ecstatic for me. I I kept in touch with him, but not in an overt way. Like I just would send him an email and be like, hey, I'm directing this show. Hope all is well. Very short because he's a busy guy. Um, he said, congratulations. You know, and then the pandemic hit. And it was, you know, six months into not working and the agents I had signed with right before the pandemic started, uh, one of them called me and said, would you be interested in doing 911? I was like, I would be interested in working, especially Mm -hmm. at 911, since I know and love those guys. And at the same time, Brad had put my name forward to the showrunner. Um, And so it was just this really nice, you know, meeting of the work I had done already and the connections I had made and my agents like being on top of it. 
I find that that's like so many stories of people getting their foot in the door are those where two two different angles like coincide with a, you know a good work sample like they know you're capable and they don't want to vouch for you 100% by themselves and someone else doesn't want to vouch for you 100% by themselves but when two people are vouching for you from like different places mm-hmm. that's like when the magic happens that certainly was the case with getting my second episode and when I was meeting with agents after I booked Chicago fire, but hadn't directed yet in my first meeting with the agents I ended up signing with, I'm at Verve. They were very honest and they were like, look, we think you're really talented. We see a big future for you, but the reality is, you know, booking you on episodes will happen when our more experienced directors back out at the last minute and we have yeah. to fill the spot. As far as I know, that's what happened with this 911 is they repped another director who was supposed to direct that episode. They had to back out for whatever reason and they put my name forward. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Can you tell us like a tiny bit about like prepping? When you say you prepped an entire episode as if you're going to shoot it, what does that mean? You were like making a shot list? You were uh, telling the costume designer what, what uh, people should wear? What do you mean? It was a lot of talking to myself in my head. So I sat in on all the prep meetings and was on set next to Brad while he was directing. And anytime a question was asked, I would answer it in my head to myself and then compare it to how Brad answered. And I kind of did that throughout the entire process, uh, including talking to actors, talking to the DP. Um, and then I also storyboarded the entire episode by hand and I cannot draw, but it was something active for me to do while I was sitting there, you know, for 16 hours a day watching someone else work. You know what else I love about that, Brenna, is that there's evidence of that thought process and work, right? Like it's easy for a showrunner to, you know, walk past you as you're listening intently to, you know, the director answer a question and, you know, see you off in space and, you know, you're rehearsing what you would have said in that moment. But there's no way you can tell that or if you're thinking about like what you're going to do that night, you know what I mean? Like wondering what time wrap is, but like, oh, here's the storyboards I put together because I've been thinking about this so much and I wanted to put it down on paper. There is something to be said about just having evidence. You know what I mean? Having something physical to be like, hey, I've been thinking about it really hard. Here is the result of that work in some way. And I can and and it prompts questions of like, why did you why did you put the camera here? Well, because I remember when someone asked this question, they said X, Y and Z. So this is why I thought I would put it there or whatever. It's just a conversation piece. But you can't have that conversation piece if everything is internal. But did you board? You made the storyboards before the shoot. No, I was I was doing stuff before, and I was hand drawing storyboards while we were on set of the scenes we were shooting. But Matt, you touch on something which I think is really important for people who are shadowing. The goal of me storyboarding wasn't as like a performative act, so people could see I was working hard. But that is what it became is people saw I was working hard and I think they have so many shadows come through, you know, a lot of them are fantastic, but if a portion of them are strolling through Instagram all day, you're going to notice that. And then when a director comes along who's totally engaged, it does set a different tone in the village area. So sorry. I'm so you're just sitting there like, in the director's chair in Video Village, like with a notepad and just drawing storyboards? I, I had printed out blank storyboard sheets and then I was penciling storyboards the entire shoot for the most part. And sometimes I would bring what I had and then see how Brad shot it and then draw the shots that he that did. Needed. And it was great. I mean, I totally absorbed the visual language of that show through doing that. We had previous guest payment Benz on oh, kind of a long while ago now, but the big takeaway I had from him was that whenever he was going to approach a new show, he would watch a handful of episodes and then write the shot lists 
for those episodes. So then he knew the exact shot language that the show works in. Like it's one thing to watch the show and it's another to be like, you know, itemized list of like every shot that they use and realize, oh, they never use clean singles. It's all, they're always dirty or whatever those little details are, you know, just as a, for instance. Um, And I thought that was really smart. I think the interesting thing about directors, especially in TV is they're not so much responsible for what the final episode is as opposed to like gathering the building blocks for the episode. So if you know how a show is shot, then you become very valuable as a person that knows the type of things to gather for that show, you know? Absolutely. And every show has a different degree of how much they want a director to make those creative decisions and how much they want the material they need to cut the show the way they'd like to cut it. Enough about your success. You went (laughs) from zero to like, a bazillion in during a pandemic, which is very impressive. So when I met you, I started saying this, you know, at Matt's baby shower, you told me about the short film you made in film school at Chapman, right? That ended up getting you a student Academy Award. And I thought it was really fascinating just what it was about, how you came up with it, why you told that story. And obviously, it, I'm sure it was instrumental in kind of launching your career. So as kind of like a story of things that our listeners, especially people that are newer filmmakers and trying to figure out like, what's the thing they can do to be noticed that I think your example is like this perfect story. When I started at Chapman, I had a a fairly strong understanding of directing, working with actors. I had very little technical skills when it comes to filmmaking. So I tried to make my years at Chapman about understanding camera and editing and and all the craft things about filmmaking I knew very little about. The first week of film school, they have an orientation where they show past student films that were great. And one of the ones they showed is directed by someone who I'm now very close friends with, a director named Sarah Thacker. And it was a period piece, World War II musical that was almost 40 minutes long called, called The Bright Side. Highly recommend this short film to anyone who wants to see what just like a superb short film can be. I remember sitting there watching it and thinking this woman has set the bar and I will spend the next three years trying to reach it. And this is grad school? Just- this is grad okay. school. Okay. So you had a background in working with actors or theater or? Yeah, that's a whole other long story. When I was in college, I tried to study abroad in London and take some film classes. And I accidentally got placed at this very historic and traditional British drama school. And I was there as a director, but they didn't let me do much directing. I basically was just forced (laughs) into the acting program which was like 12 hours a day, five to six days a week, ballet, Shakespeare, Meisner. It was the most insane time of my life. So I had no experience before that. And then it was... uh, Wait, so just to clarify, you were like, I'm going to go study abroad and learn how to direct, to be a director. And then they're like, no, Brenna, you are at Hogwarts, but also you have to take (laughs) ballet and Meisner instead. Sorry, you're Slytherin, not Hufflepuff. Yeah. What's, uh, did you have to pay for this school that put you in the wrong major? So I actually didn't go to learn directing. I thought I was going to go take some film theory classes and then like every other college student party it up. Sure. The entire time. That was not what happened. I don't know. I still don't know if it was a paperwork error or what, (laughs) but this was a school that like... They told me 4,000 people auditioned each year for 15 acting spots and five directing spots. And I was just there with zero acting or directing experience amongst these young British people who had like sacrificed everything to be there. (laughs) Wait, did you have to audition? No, I was there like one exchange student. Of the year, I guess they took. You know that one. there's like a British Brenna Malloy right now that's like just so know, mad. janitor at a just so mad <laughs> at, a, at kindergarten. It's like I hate her. What happened to my spot? 
Yeah, I still I it's it's a mirror. It's the biggest gift I've ever been given was my time there. You accidentally took a a crash course in acting. So after Hogwarts showed up at Chapman and I knew that I wanted to make something that had production value. And I sort of was watching all these short films and thinking, really, I should take stock of what I have access to. Now, this first year of film school, knowing that I want to make something for my thesis, that's extraordinary. Sorry to interrupt you, but like, what do you what do you mean by had, has production value? Like, what does that mean to you as a, as a student filmmaker? So, like, I think anything you have access to for free that would cost most people money is production value. I had a parent who was a nurse before COVID. I would have access to a hospital. That's mm-hmm. production value. Or um, you're a martial artist or yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah. Any sort of view into a world that most people don't know and you can access locations or props or people that would normally be very expensive. Um, before you continue, Brenna, the other thing I want to point out is the phrase you used was that you intended to make something extraordinary, right? And that's a thing that like, I think as filmmakers, we all implicitly want to do that no one's like well i want to make kind of like a mediocre like down the middle film no one ever says that and no one ever thinks that but to explicitly say like no i want my movie to be extraordinary i want it to be fucking awesome is a way of not to get too woo woo but it is a way of manifesting right it is a way of setting intentions and making it clear to people like no i want i want this to be awesome and you know i don't know that you know 23 year old brenna was like my thesis is going to be extraordinary, but it wouldn't surprise me if you did say that, right? And I, I think that that's a thing, owning that you want your films to be good and that you're telling everyone that they are going to be good or that you intend to make them good and that here are all the ways in which you're going to do that, I think is a, a thing that knowing you personally is a, a trend with you and is a thing that I think people can start doing right away. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. But when I look back at that time, no part of me was confident about this endeavor. What my time in London gave me is it it revealed to me the depth of my ignorance. And so I went directly from that into film school, having zero confidence in myself, but knowing that the work is what matters and everything else is on the side. And so I think the strive for something extraordinary was to hit a note for myself about the process, not so much about the film being extraordinary. And I, I love your definition of production value, and it's a great way to think about it. I'm guilty of many times thinking like, wow, I have access to this amazing thing. Like my brother, he was a music student at Cal State Long Beach for five years, and he knew everyone. And he like had an or- he was part of the orchestra, he was a double major. And part of like this big choir. And that I was always like, oh, I could get like a whole orchestra for free and shoot at this place for free. And that would be if I paid for that and be so expensive. You know, the smart filmmaker capitalizes on that, uh, which probably segues into what you did next. Back to how it came to be. My great grandfather, Emmett Malloy, ran a dirt racetrack in Inglewood, California in the 40s and 50s. And my Grandfather Tom was a little kid running around this track obsessed with racing and these drivers. And this was at a time, racing's always been dangerous, but this was at a time where they had like lap seatbelts and like leather helmets. I mean, right. people perished. 90%. Yeah. At these <laughs> races. Yeah. Right. And so anyway, my my grandfather grew up and him and my grandma. Um, got married and they struggled financially for a long time. And then when my dad was a kid, my grandpa started a business, a construction business in LA. And he's a very frugal man. But when the business started doing well, he started collecting the cars that raced at his dad's track. And so flash forward to me as a kid, I grew up going with him to vintage races, sitting in these cars from the 40s and 50s, daydreaming about what it was like back then. And so that was really the genesis of this story is what would it be like for a woman back then to inherit um, her father's racing legacy? 
And I asked him if I could use his cars, his cherished um, possessions that he spent years putting together and caring for and was fully expecting him to say no. And he said yes. And he was my biggest supporter letting me use those cars. Wow. And what about the location? That's another good story. The location was actually his brother's ranch in Lompoc, California, that I grew up going to the, he did a pumpkin patch every year. So um, I asked, I asked his brother if he'd be open to it. And he said he wanted to read the script first. (laughs) And he read it and said, no. That's pretty awesome. Because He's it like, was unless there's a role for me, Brenna. No, I think it had <laughs> feminist um, undertones. <laughs> oh, and then, on. and then he read it again, and he realized it was very much about the father daughter dynamic. Mm-hmm. And there's a sweet story there because my grandpa and his brother didn't have the best relationship my whole life, but they came together to help me make Rocket, and they um, repaired their brotherhood. And, um, reconciled after all those years. And then, um, he ended up dying, you know, a couple of years after that. So it was a really amazing thing for my family too to make this film. I bet that just crushes at Thanksgiving. Yeah. Like Brenna m- mended the family and won an Oscar. <laughs> I, it, it does not crush. Cause They're I have... like, uh, who cares? What's an Oscar? Oh, Chicago yeah. PD. Yeah. It. I have uh you know relatives that have uh done m- much more than me let's say so <laughs> so did you build the racetrack at, on this ranch like did you get a production designer to dig a track how does that work so my production designer was Rama Farahat who I went to Chapman with who's a wonderful designer who's working as an art director right now. And she and I went up there and talked about everything. And we talked with my grandpa's brother and my grandpa and him worked together to make the track exactly how we wanted it. He took a tractor out there and graded it. And it was a team effort. Wow. And you built like stands and all the elements that go. Rocket is, there's so little there. When you, if you take a second look at it, Everything we had, we put in the frame. There's no stands. There's three extras. I mean, it is. it was so sparse, which was such a challenge for us. Um, the one thing we did is we built a huge scoreboard, and that helped tell a lot of the story at the track. What I love about that, though, is that it's literally you're using the elements that you have. Like you're saying you had enough plywood to make a scoreboard, a few friends to come be extras a car and some and the space to shoot basically and did you hire stunt drivers so this is another good story years before someone had used one of the cars in my grandpa's collection for a commercial and the stunt coordinator of that commercial and my grandpa hit it off that man ended up being andy armstrong who stunt coordinated uh the spider-mans and green hornet and a bunch of other big movies. And I had no idea when I cold called him that he actually was a huge support of female directors and female stunt coordinators. So I cold called him out of the blue just for advice. And that call turned into a mentorship, turned into a friendship, turned into him and his wife, Jen, coming out and Jen stunt coordinated the movie out of the goodness of her heart and Andy helped her. So I just lucked into this amazing opportunity to work with like two huge people in the stunt world. That's crazy. Had Jen coordinated before? Jen had coordinated before, not to the level Mm -hmm. Andy had, but Jen is a, a very accomplished stunt woman and stunt coordinator. I guess the thing I'm actually asking is like, I think oftentimes it's really helpful to like incentivize crew members in other ways. And sometimes a a credit can be meaningful, right? So like if she was looking for more coordinator credits, that can be a way of paying her without 
spending cold hard cash, for instance. I think she was looking for coordinator credit. But with that being said, the amount of money a stunt person can make in a day on anything is compared to doing a student film for nothing. They're the nicest people in the world, and I will forever be indebted to them for doing this. To rewind a tiny bit about like why you chose to make this movie, obviously you have the family history and the the connection, and you found a personal story, which is like to me what is so great about this is I, I'm a lot of times I think how you know you you see these really interesting stories from people that have really unique backgrounds, and then I sometimes think of myself, and I'm like I'm just this guy from Orange County. I grew up in the suburbs. Like I have my story, but it's kind of very familiar. How do I mine my life for something that can stand out? It can be extraordinary. I can move people in a way that they haven't been moved before. That's what I really like about your story that you found, you know, this is your great grandfather's story and you put like your inquisitiveness into his world, which I think is just a a cool way into making something original, you know? It's cool hearing you say that. I've done very little reflecting about it, but I really, it was just a marriage of everything you've just said of like putting a passion I have in my own family history to the question of what is a love story that has a happy ending, but they don't end up together. That's where I came at it as a director and as a writer. The other thing like that you mentioned production value, you mentioned seeing this incredible short film that inspired you to up your game, you know, from a directorial standpoint. Can you tell us a little bit about like what drew you to make action sequences and and also how you approached them as a new person that, I mean, I'm assuming you probably hadn't filmed a ton of car races before that? I hadn't. um, Myself, um, my DP, Nick Ramsey, who's wonderful. And the rest of our crew, we would get together each week leading up to shooting this and we'd watch a racing movie. Like and Fast and Furious 1. <laughs> we did. We, we watched, <laughs> I think we watched Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift. We watched that. We watched Talladega Nights. We watched Le Mans. We watched Rush. We watched. Rush is pretty great. Rush didn't get enough attention, honestly. Rush is a really good movie. It's Ron Howard, right? It's Ron <laughs> Howard. Um, and really, we kind of tapped into this thing that photographing racing is really challenging outside of the obvious reasons of the mechanics of like having a vehicle move fast and having a camera move fast along with it. When you're making a movie about something really niche like racing, if you honor the racing, the story tends to fall by the wayside. And when you honor the story, the reality of the racing falls by the wayside. And so that prep kind of helped us tap into how we wanted to attack the racing sequences visually with no money. (laughs) And I always wanted to do it practically. And so we kind of put our heads together and Andy and Jen came up with an idea to craft our own process trailer so that we could pull the vintage cars up onto it and the front wheels would be attached and the back wheels would be moving practically so that when you filmed the actor, the car was actually moving, the wheels were moving. I had no experience doing this. Time out. Hold on. It's like you're towing the car. You're you're towing a car. Yeah, yeah. But are you using, you're not using a tow truck. What are you? We are using my dad's old Suburban to tow a homemade process trailer towing the car. Now that I mention it, though, hearing it out loud, people will use a tow as like a process trailer. That That is a thing that people will use sometimes. Right. Even like a U-Haul one. Mm-hmm. The problem is that the wheels are high, right? When you yeah. tow a car at an angle, you put just the front wheels on like the U-Haul tower, then it's angled, right? So did the Suburban work better? Was it level, basically? The- The Suburban towed a trailer that was very low to the ground and we pulled the car up onto the trailer that had holes for the front tires to dip down into so that it was relatively level. And uh, because these cars, the engines in them, no, I mean, we had to get very specific stunt people to drive them. Actors would, would never be able to drive these without intense training. Um, 
So that was a, I still can't believe we pulled that off. And are your actors, oh, but but you used actors because you were using the process trailer. Yep. Everything that's close is our actors on the trailer. And then everything that's far is our stunt performers. Cool. And then, and you choreographed like the races. It was a group effort. It was kind of, I mean, I co-wrote the script with Ian Hawk. And so it started there. And then when Andy became a part of it, really working with him to figure out how we could craft who takes over when, you know, especially the opening sequence where there's a crash. And so it was learning a lot from Andy and Jen um, and then doing what we needed to hit those story points. Cool. Okay. So you made this short film. Obviously I'm assuming you, did you feel like it was pretty good when you were done with it? No, I didn't. I didn't think it was bad to be totally honest. I thought I can feel proud of this in terms of, I won't be ashamed to show this to people, but I did not think it was good. And we submitted it to the student Academy awards when we submitted to every other festival because it was free to submit to student Academy awards. Wait, how do you do that? Did the, does your, does Chapman help you submit it? No, at the time it was just through like film freeway or whatever the other one was. I was going to say Chapman now is maybe the school that I feel like is the best at submitting short films to film festivals. I meet more young Chapman filmmakers just like out and about. And I like, I'm always like, what is going on? Where like, I think that now they're like the, there's like a department that's very, very actively trying to get Chapman filmmakers out there. Whereas like USC doesn't help you at all, or at least didn't back when I was there. And I, I think it's still the case. Like it's not crazy to see like, I don't know, Twenty five percent of a short film program be Chapman students. Wow, it's bonkers. I was like, "What is going on?" Anyway, there is someone up. who works there. Who there is like a film festival department. I and when we when we were working with them, they were they were great. Um, but the Student Academy Awards was just like we. It's just a button we clicked on Film Freeway, and then we found out you've, there was like four different steps before fa- finding out you won. And at one point we found out we were in the top a hundred or something. And I was like, this is insane. How all of us shocked, couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, we'll never make it any further, but what an honor to be in the top 100. And then it just kept dwindling further and further. And I, I, I'm still in shock. I still cannot believe it. And that entire experience completely changed my life. So you became one of five nominees or how did that work? So at the time, I don't know if it's the same now, but at the time it was, there's three winners in each category and there's uh, gold, uh, silver and bronze. And we won bronze for narrative category. Oh, cool. And so that's a student Academy award for your short. And then did you do anything personally to kind of get out the word that you had won this award? Nope. <laughs> I <laughs> did nothing at all except wonder what I was going to do next and try to make stuff. I did uh, sign with a manager at this time who I've been with ever since. And I was very green about the industry then. And she started sending me on a lot of generals, which I was so bad at, just had no idea what I was doing or what to say to these people or that I should pitch something. Um, And so that was the beginning of what led to TV is just that process of trying to get the next thing going. Well, and, and what happened basically, what was the next big step after the Academy Awards, what was the next get? So after Student Academy Awards, my next big thing was getting into the Ryan Murphy half initiative and shadowing on nine one one. Right, and then after shadowing on nine one one, you did a few more programs. Is that correct? After shadowing on nine one one, I made some shorts 
was trying to better myself as a writer of features. And while I was doing that, I was applying to every program there is. I got an interview with Female Forward, the NBC program, the first year they did it. And I made it to the interview round, which that year they had said was they were interviewing, I want to say like 30 to 50 people out of a thousand applicants. So when I learned I had made it into that, it didn't give me confidence, but it gave me hope that I was onto something. Did terrible in the interview. Absolutely awful. Could not have done worse. Do you remember? Can you give an example of like a bad thing you did in the interview? Yes. They asked me, what do you need to most work on as a director or what's your, what's your weak weakness? And I said, the tone of my voice. <laughs> what what, what they, did you mean by that though? What were you getting at? I just, I don't know. I think I, because when I was in this drama school with all these people who had this like perfect, like, like they had these perfect voices because they did so many vocal exercises and whatever. I'd always been so self-conscious of like having vocal fry and mm. like just not, yeah, you know, in an interview setting, even in a setting like this, this isn't my normal tone of voice and I have no control over it. And so. Um, yeah, that's a bad answer. That's a bad <laughs> It's answer. terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> it's interesting, and, I think. But it's yeah, interesting, but that's not like it's not it, what they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear it seem oh, related to directing. That what, that's another way of saying, like, what do you want to work on? Where do your ambitions lie? How self-aware of your skill set are you? Right. And what's yeah. important to you? Yeah. You know what? I think I'm 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 not ordering this right because I actually think this this first female forward interview came before shadowing for the half initiative because I didn't get it that first year for obvious reasons. And then I shadowed at nine one one and did a couple of other things. And when I came back to interview again, the following year, and this time I did something smart, which was actually prepare for the interview. They had liked that I had done things to better myself as a director in the mm-hmm. year. In between. So, yeah. I think the the point that I am almost always trying to make when we have conversations with people who have great TV careers and have shadowed is that it's it's very common. I think maybe unanimously true that you do multiple programs. Maggie Kylie, Hannah Lee Culpepper. So a bunch of people who just, you know, shadow like crazy, basically, and then finally get that first episode. I do have one final question before we go into unpaid endorsements. And that's what do you do next? Right. You've done 13 episodes of television and they're in the procedural world. Right. So like that's like one very particular style of television. Is it do you want to expand into other types? Do you want to do features? Are you like, no, I'm just going to, you know, become a producing director on one of these shows and like live that life. Now that you've really jumped into the deep end. What do you see as that next step for yourself? In an ideal world, I'd like to start producing directing. I don't see any immediate, you know, like it's going to happen soon, but I think my work speaks for itself and it's, it's been going well and knock on wood, it continues to go well. Those jobs are hard to get and they're especially hard to get in the city we live in. That would be a great next step for me. I'd also at some point like to make a first feature um, and maybe down the road direct pilots. It's um, it, it's something that I think I've learned in the last two years that when I'm directing an episode, I feel really passionate about when the script speaks to me, it makes me come alive as a director. And when I direct an episode where the script doesn't speak to me very much, it's really challenging to stay focused And so it's motivated me to dive back into the stuff I was writing before doing TV, because I think I'll need, as time goes on, if if I keep getting opportunities like this, I will need a better balance of the type of work I do in order to sustain myself. Yeah, I do feel like there is a point in everyone's career where we have that moment of like, oh, this is it this is what the job is. This is what I worked for. And like, unless you're doing 
like huge, huge studio movies, there's room to move up, right? But like, I think the realities of the job sort of hits you at a certain point and you kind of have to decide like, do I want to keep going? You know? I definitely want to keep going. I mean, I can't believe what I get to do. Like, you know, last week I was doing an episode where I showed up on set and we had turned an empty building into a full grocery store. The entire thing was set dressed as a grocery store. And there was five fire trucks and a SWAT, you know, van and 10 cop cars and 40 yeah. actors and a whole crew. It, it is incredible, certainly. And I'm, I'm, like, I'm not taking anything for granted. You're living the dream. But I guess what I'm saying is, is that once you realize that dream, you know, you you realize it completely, fully. You know, the, the, the good and the bad is all, is all I was getting at. It's true. It's There's challenges of working at this pace, absolutely. Both in life and in work, it's, it's hard to be gone this much of the year. I've learned that when I'm having those really tough moments of like, why am I doing this? Why have I set myself up for this feeling? And it happens at least one day every episode. I have this routine where right when I get off set, I go to bed and then I get up like at two, three in the morning and I work for three, four hours before a day of shooting going over the plan for the day. And there's some days where I'm in that 4 a.m. hour, like on my second cup of coffee, knowing I'm being picked up in an hour and not having it in me to get through the day where I'm like, why have I chosen this life for myself? <laughs> yeah. And then you go blow up a, a grocery store. And yeah, exactly. Life is pretty good. But I mean, wow. that's, I think, part of being an artist is you're constantly asking yourself why you're doing this. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Chicago Brenna, do you have a few more minutes to endorse with us? I do. Unpaid endorsements. All right. Well, I had a different endorsement, but I'm going to save it for later because you've inspired me, Brenna. All this talk of the world of old fashioned racing and also your point about the balance between the nature of the race and the nature of story and how to kind of strike that balance reminded me of one of my all time favorite old This American Life episodes. It's episode 279, Auto Show, Act 5. It's called The End of the Road specifically. And it is about the story of a reporter, Dan Neal, who's like an automotive critic for the LA Times. He tells the story of Sterling Moss, who was a race car driver who at the time was 75 and held the world record for completing a thousand mile race called the Mille Miglia, which is just like an old fashioned hardcore race, right? They're just racing through the countryside and the race lasts for 10 hours. This reporter rides with this old-fashioned old man basically in the car in the mercedes that he won that race in basically and it just becomes this kind of lyrical romantic story about the nature of racing and as a person who's not especially interested in sports overall or racing i've revisited it over the years many many times it's just like it's lyrical it's introspective it brings new understanding to what racing is and the nature of practice and all sorts of stuff. So end of the road, act five, episode 279 auto show on this American life is uh, my endorsement. And now it's been a long time since I've listened to the show. You can just listen to that act. You just have to like scrub through, through, through the, the episode to find it. But, um, but that's my endorsement. Is it my turn? It is your turn, Brenna. What you got? Okay, I have two things. I hope that's okay. The first one is a film tool that I've actually used on my last two episodes. I don't think it's new, but it's new to me and it was new to the shows. I used it for the first time at Chicago PD and then I just used it at Chicago Fire. And it's called a F-27 telescopic crane. It's essentially a very lightweight crane that can arm out over 25 feet and the entire unit weighs with the camera and the camera head weighs about 500 pounds and it can live on its own dolly or it can live on like a Fisher dolly or a Chapman dolly. What it's great for is interior crane moves, which aren't really needed very much and it has to be the right moment. But on both of my last two episodes, we had the need for an interior crane move and we probably could have somehow gotten a 
Technocrane into the Chicago Fire set, but there's no way we could have got it on the Chicago PD set because it's a bullpen that's like raised. You have to go upstairs to get to that bullpen set. And it was just a really cool lightweight crane. Jason Strathorn on Chicago PD recommended it. They had been wanting to try it. I said, why not? Let's give it a shot. Is it also skinny enough to get through doorways really easily? Yes. It's very cool. Yes, it gets through doorways really well. Highly recommend if um, the grip team is up for it. Can I ask you, like, we needed an interior crane shot. Like, is that something that you wanted or like you actually needed it? In this case, it was both. Every show has a different need for a director to push things visually. And at Chicago PD, they've really encouraged the directors to be as dynamic as possible with the camera. I described the shot I wanted to the producing director. And then the DP and key grip got involved and they recommended this tool. So it was came from a place of me wanting to do a shot the producing director liked, and then the team figuring out how to make it work. My second thing is the backpack that has gotten me through 13 episodes of TV, and I don't have the heart to replace because it's in perfect condition still, because it's such a great backpack. And it's by Peak Design, which I believe started as a camera bag company and was so popular that they expanded into backpacks and duffels. And this is the 20 liter everyday backpack, which is incredibly durable and perfectly designed. And you can change the size of all the compartments within best backpack ever. Cool. That's really good recommendations. Mine are going to not be good. First, I'm going to add an addendum to last week's recommendation, the Elote chips from Trader Joe's. I just, I really endorsed them quite aggressively last week. And I, I, I did realize today that some people might think they're a little too spicy. So if you're not into spicy stuff, maybe skip them. I ate an entire bag of them again today. My dad bought me three bags at Trader Joe's and I've have none left. I've had them and I can't buy them because I'll eat the whole bag immediately. Oh, see, Matt, I feel like there was some doubt. Dude, I'm ready. I just don't go to Trader Joe's. Anyway, uh, also kind of inspired by Brenna, not the traditional endorsement, but not inspired by Brenna specifically, but by our conversation of deciding how long we should struggle for and all that stuff is I've been saying no to a lot of things recently, a lot of jobs, a lot of things that don't seem quite right for me and maybe losing out on money and maybe losing out on work, but being pretty happy that I have like a weekend to do the things I want to do. And in this industry, you know, there's a lot of hustle and you're constantly fighting to get jobs and it's all about the work and you're, you know, on set for 60 days, 16 hours a day or whatever, drawing storyboards that no one will ever shoot. Like it's exhausting. And so it's okay to say no every once in a while, especially if the job does not seem at all interesting to you. Can I ask you a follow-up question about that? Sure. Do you think those decisions you've been making saying no will pay off because the time you have away from the work actually strengthens you. You have a deeper well to pull from when you come back. Having time to breathe for a second or to just like not be stressed out has been helpful for me. And yeah, I got offered this pretty awesome job that paid really well with this company I love and a team I love, but the content was just not really something that like, I've been trying to focus my career more recently and work on things that I think either I love right now or it's just incredibly obvious for me how this job will lead to the next job, whether it's a producer I really want to work with or a brand or a type of genre um, or an actor. I, I find that directing just for the money is is really draining because directing is all consuming and it takes so hard. It yeah. takes a lot of work and you have to be worried about everything all the time. And so I'd rather do other things just for money and direct also for money, but just be a little more selective. And I think a lot of people, especially people that are starting out or that have their own production companies, like have this instinct to just say yes to every single thing, because we all know, and we've heard the story on the podcast a million times, like this job that you had no interest in that had no budget ended up leading to this amazing opportunity. Like that, that stuff does happen. And it is true. I don't know. I think just saying no is is powerful too. So I might have, I might have talked about this recently on the podcast, but I'm doubling down on it. Mm-hmm. Good for you. 
I think you did, but it bears repeating for sure. And uh, I'll try those chips one of these days, Warren. You better. Um, well, Brenna, thank you so much. How can listeners uh, keep track of your exploits and all of your wonderful television directing and, and your future endeavors? I am DB. Perfect. That's a good answer. <laughs> Brenna Malloy on IMDb. If you have thoughts or questions about the show, if you want us to forward a question along to Brenna, you can hit us up at justshootapod at gmail.com. Or if you just want to tweet at us, that's another way, or Instagram. We're across all social media at justshootapod. And I'm at Mr. Matt Enlow. And I'm at O'Kaplan on Instagram. I'm at SmiteyPileg on Twitter. And this episode was edited by Noah Bayshore. The music you're listening to is from the Free Music Archive and the artist Jazar. And rate us on iTunes if you get a chance. We appreciate it. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And... Don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.